well, we are going to be looking in Luke 6, so you can turn to Luke 6. So we're going to be examining verses 37 through 42. And as you do that, I just want to ask you a question. What do you think is the most well-known, famous, popular verse in all the Bible? John 3.16, everybody says that. But you know, I think there's another one. Most people know John 3.16. A lot of people do. Not only the verse reference, but they can, you know, get through the passage. But there is another verse, or rather a portion of a verse, which a lot of people know. I think it's a contender. People who don't even go to church... People who have never studied the Bible, people who don't believe the Bible and don't even want to study the Bible know this verse fragment. It acts like a kind of force field to repel those who might share the gospel with them. I've talked to people about the gospel, about their sin, about what God says in his word. And most of them, when they start feeling conviction, when they start feeling God's word judging them out of their mouth instinctively flows if it was etched there from the moment of birth. Judge not, lest you be judged. You ever heard that? Yeah. Yeah, I think we all have. We've all heard that phrase, judge not, lest you be judged. They kind of use it like, you know, a Kevlar vest to repel any gospel presentations or any uh, assaults uh, from the scriptures exposing their sin. They just don't want to hear it. They don't want people, you know, talking to them about their problem. Judge not, lest you be judged. And even if you're trying to help them, some of them just don't want help. They want to continue on in their sin and they don't want you messing with their personal life. You know, you have your own Christian life and I'll have my own Christian life and, you know, we can sit together in church, but I don't want you messing with me. You know, I've got my little pet sins and I want to keep them. And I don't want you being involved and you start talking to me about what I'm doing or not doing right or wrong, you know, judge not lest you be judged. And many people are rather successful at driving those who would show love to them by helping them in their sins by quoting that verse. They take it out of context, misinterpret it, and you know what? It works. It works because I've had many Christians quote this verse to me, at least many professing Christians. And so it's used incorrectly and understood incorrectly to repel other people. But there's another way that the misinterpretation of this text text uh, causes damage. And that is, is when Christians think that this text condemns all form of judgment and discernment that you just, you just cannot go around judging anybody. You cannot make a judgment. You just have to be undiscerning. And you know, if they see somebody else in sin and they know that person's in sin and they they think, you know, maybe I should talk to them, then comes to their mind, judge not, lest you be judged. And so they don't say anything. They just let that brother or sister in Christ continue on in their sin and they don't help them. And so what we want to do this morning is hopefully correct a lot of the misunderstandings that have arisen over the years out of this verse that... It seems every unbeliever even knows a fragment of a verse without a context. Judge not lest you be judged. Remember, we're studying the Sermon on the Mount. Luke calls it the Sermon on the Plain only because Jesus went up on the mountain, found a plain, a flat spot, and they sat there and he taught them. Jesus spoke of four Beatitudes. We saw that in verses 20 through 23. These Beatitudes are characteristic of those who have God's saving grace working in their life. Then he talks about four woes, which describe characteristics, uh, experiences, things in those who do not have God's saving grace working in their life. But the last beatitude being the most difficult one, blessed are you when men persecute you or say all manner of evil against you falsely on account of me or for for the son of man's sake or as Matthew has it for righteousness sake. Because of the difficulty of responding correctly to persecution, Jesus then goes into this lengthy discussion to try and help us. 
Because, you know, you can be convicted, you can mourn over your sin, all that's fairly easy to deal with. But man, when you do what's right, when you follow God, when you are a godly person and other people start attacking you, that's hard to deal with. It's hard to respond correctly. And so in verses 27 through 30, Jesus gives eight hyperbolic or extreme commands which he uses as examples or illustrations to show us how we are to respond in the face of those who mistreat us, do evil towards us for doing what is right. He summarizes how we are supposed to act in verse 31 with the golden rule that we are to treat others in the same way we would have them treat us. Then in verses 32 through 34, Jesus asks three questions, three questions which are designed to remind us of the folly of acting like the world and responding like the world when we are persecuted for righteousness sake. Then in verses 35 and 36, he gives us two motivations for responding properly to persecution. One, we're going to have a great reward waiting for us in heaven. And two, when we respond correctly to persecution, we will prove ourselves or demonstrate ourselves to be children of the Most High God. Finally, he gives us two examples to follow. We are to follow God in two ways. We are to be kind because God is kind to ungrateful and evil men. And we are to be merciful because God is merciful to evil men. So Jesus now is continuing to explain what godly behavior looks like, which brings us to our text for this morning. So if you look at verse 37, you can follow along as I read. Jesus says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour in your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. And he also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now, what's interesting is when you look at commentators and they start um, commenting on the text, some actually believe here that Luke has just assembled some random sayings that just relate to, you know, Christianity in general, Christian behavior in general. But of course, the Holy Spirit isn't random. The Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write this and Luke is narrating uh, what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And granted, though, Matthew and Luke tell us different things about what Jesus said. They all come from the same cohesive sermon and uh, they do relate. If you remember, there is a fundamental Bible study principle, a hermeneutical principle, that whenever you come to a passage, context determines the meaning of the passage. And you just have to remember that. I like to use this illustration for you. Just imagine yourself standing in the concrete bridge over a river. You look upstream and the river's flowing towards the bridge. You look downstream, the river's flowing away. Now, even though you can't see the water under the bridge, what direction is it flowing? The same. It's not flowing sideways. Why? Because the context tells you it's got to be flowing that way. I mean, it's all coming this way and it's all leaving that way. And so it's got to be flowing the same direction. Well, in our text this morning, we have verse 37 where Jesus is talking about judging. And then we have verses 41 and 42, which are clearly talking about judging. And so that means verses 38 through 40 must be talking about judging. You got it. And that's how it's got to work. The question is, how do these verses, verses 38 through 40, speak to the issue of judging? Well, that's what we're going to find out right now. So here we are. Do not judge, but be quick to forgive. This is our first point. It's important to remember that Jesus is correcting false ideas that have become popular in his day. 
Remember, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees had become very hypocritical in their worship, in their religiosity. They were adding things to the word of God and they were requiring that men submit to their man-made religions. And if people didn't submit to their man-made religions, then they would condemn them as being not godly. And though Luke does not emphasize this, Matthew does. In Matthew 5.20, in the same sermon, Matthew says, Jesus says this, For unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Jesus said that to the crowd, and sure, I'm sure there are scribes and Pharisees listening, you probably heard this. <gasps> because these guys were fanatics. They were Bible-thumping, Bible-memorizing, Bible-obeying fanatics. You know, they got their razor blade out there, and they've got their, you know, chili powder, and they're separating it so they can get a tenth and give it. You know, they've they've got all these rules, and and everybody knows they give because they see them giving. Everybody knows they pray because they see them praying. Everybody knows they're religious because they talk like they're religious. And these guys are hyper pious. And now Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness goes way beyond them, you're never even getting into heaven. And the people must have just thought. (gasps) Then he goes down in Matthew's account and says, you have heard it said, but I tell you. And what he began to, who did they hear it from? The religious leaders. The religious leaders were saying, the Bible says this, and this is what it means. And we'll add some more onto that. And so Jesus is correcting false understandings that were common in his day. And you have to keep that in mind as we go through the text. Now, Jesus begins in our section, verse 37 following, giving two negative commands followed by two positive commands. Let's look at the first negative one, verse 37. Jesus says, do not judge and you will not be judged. There it is. And every unbeliever knows that verse. The phrase do not judge is a present active command, which basically means do not always be in the habit of judging other people. Don't wake up in the morning thinking, okay, who can I judge? You know, where you have this censorious, you know, I'm attack mode type of thing going on where you think that your whole life is just to be critical of other people. Get out of that mindset. The word judge in the Greek is, uh, comes from the word crino and, uh, it's the word that we get the English words critical and criticize from and that's basically what it means it means to be critical to discriminate to separate to judge between things and at first glance if you were only to read this verse and not know anything about the context and not read anything that followed you might come to the conclusion that jesus is just condemning judging outright That there's never a time anybody should ever judge because after all, a fragment of this verse ripped out of context says, do not judge lest you be judged. But that is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying don't ever judge in any circumstance at all. And we will see this as we work down through the text. But let's look at the second negative command, verse 37. And do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Same verb tense as the other. It means do not always be in the habit of condemning other people. The word condemn describes the act of passing a a judgment or sentence against somebody. Usually this is very closely tied with the word, word judgment because what do you do? You look at something, you know, you may consider the facts and then you pass a judgment. You go to court, the facts are brought out, they're argued, and then there is a sentence delivered. This is the sentence part. These two go together. Jesus says, don't be in the habit of being that kind of person. Because if you do, then you too will be condemned. But the question is, what kind of judging and condemning does Jesus forbid here? If he's not condemning and forbidding all kinds of judgment and condemnation, then what kind is he forbidding? And here it is, hypocritical judgment. Hypocritical judgment. But let's see the positive commands and the text will unfold this hypocritical judgment as we go down. Let's look at the positive commands. Look at verse 37. The end. 
He says, pardon and you will be pardoned. This is the positive aspect. Don't always be judging. Don't always be condemning like the scribes and Pharisees who are hypocritical. We'll see that in a minute. But instead, pardon. The word pardon means to set free, a release, um, to forgive. Again, Jesus is not saying never um, judge anyone. But he is saying, listen, be in the habit of forgiving. Have a life that is characterized by pardoning, by pardoning. You know, somebody comes up to you and says, you know, you know, I'm sorry I did this to you. And you forgive them. That's it. You know, I've talked with people in the church who have major grudges they're holding. Yeah, you know, I've never I spoke, spoke to my dad in you know, 20 years. Well, why not? Well, you know, you don't know what he did to me. Yeah, but you don't know what you did to God. Yeah, well, you know, he hurt my feelings, and so I have just decided to never forgive him. Jesus says, pardon, and you will be pardoned, implied. If you don't, you won't be. Jesus taught in Mark eleven twenty five. whenever you stand praying, forgive. If, any, if you have anything against anyone... So that your father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. You see any qualifiers there? No. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Colossians 3.13 says, We need to be bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. The question is, do these verses describe you? Are you a forgiving person? Or have you made a commitment not to forgive someone or some group of people because they have offended you? Jesus says, pardon and you will be pardoned implied. And if you don't, you won't be. Now, is Jesus saying, uh, well, the act of forgiving other people is what saves you? No. He's not saving that. But what he is saying is, is that your forgiving other people demonstrates you are saved. That's not what saves you. It's what saved people do. Christians, true believers, love each other, right? Sure. And what is love? Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. I have people say, well, you know, I don't need to forgive that person because they, they haven't asked for it. Listen, are you to love that person? Well, yeah, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. The Bible is clear. You say you love God, but you don't love your brother. You are a liar and the truth is not in you. So you have to be loving your brother. And if you are taking into account a wrong suffered, you are not loving your brother. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, a parallel text to our Sermon on the Mount, for if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your heavenly Father will not forgive your transgressions. Those who will not forgive and pardon others reveal that they do not have the love of God within them. So if you're holding a grudge, if you've made a commitment not to forgive somebody, you need to repent of that. And you need to forgive them. Then we come to the second positive command. Look at verse 38. This verse is often taken out of context too. So let's just slay another cow here. Sacred cow. Give and it will be given to you. A lot of uh, pastors have beat their sheep to try and get their building programs going from this verse. And you know what? There are some principles here that apply to financial giving, but that's not what the context is talking about. When you see the word give there, you have to ask yourself, give what? Give what? Well, you think, I don't know, what has he been talking about? Well, look at the passage. The beginning of verse 38 says give. The end of verse 37 says pardon, pardon, forgive. And if you were to go back a little bit before that, verse 36, you are to give mercy. Look at the end of verse 35. You are to give kindness. Look at the beginning of verse 35. You are to give love. 
Jesus wants you to be the kind of person who is giving pardon, giving mercy, giving love, giving compassion. That is what he is after. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were very judgmental, were very censorious, were very condemning, and they were not in the habit of giving mercy or grace, but they were in the habit of passing judgment. The people had learned to be like their teachers and were not characterized by God's love and mercy and grace. And this is what Jesus is driving at here. Jesus gives a word picture so that we can understand the benefits of extending grace and kindness and love to others. He says this, look at verse 38. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you again. This does not mean if you give to the building fund, God's going to bless you. Okay, Um, that's not what it means. What this is talking about is something that anybody in that day would have known about, just it wouldn't have been an issue. Everybody would go, oh, they would just see clearly. For us, this is kind of like, what is this good measure and shaken thing? And, you know, what, what, what is this talking about? Well, in that day, when you went to the store, the marketplace, and usually you didn't go to the store, you know, once a week because things spoiled. So you were always going to the marketplace to get stuff. You didn't have refrigerators and freezers. So you bought a little bit of a food at a time. Well, when you went to the marketplace and you want to buy some dry goods, you know, well, they didn't have brown paper sacks or marlar sacks or nice little neat boxes with cellophane on them. They had a, you know, a big sack or a barrel or a big pot. And so you want some grain. Say, okay, open up your shirt. I'll give it to you. That's how people carried it. The word translated lap in the NSB, some translations have bosom. Uh, It describes a part of the common day dress where you had loose clothing and you would take your clothing and you would put a belt on and the loose part would hang over your belt. And this would be, you know, just this big fold of clothing that was called your lap or your bosom. Mothers would carry their infants there. People would carry their things there. It was that part right above your belt. It was an, you know, old fashioned version of a backpack, but in the front. And Jesus' point is that if you are kind and you are loving and you are gracious as somebody who is giving somebody else grain, somebody comes to buy grain for you, instead of just giving them the bare minimum, instead you fill up their whole lap and then you shake it so it settles. Then you pour more in until it's overflowing. I mean, wouldn't you be blessed? You think, well, hey, thanks for giving me all that grain. I mean, you didn't have to do that. Yeah, I know, I know, but it's been a good crop this year and, you know, be blessed. You know, you end up getting an extra half a measure or whatever of grain. And this is what Jesus is talking about. When somebody offends you or whatever and they ask for forgiveness or, or even if they don't, you need to realize that you've offended other people. You've offended God. And look how much he's forgiven you. And so extend grace to them, pardon Give love, have mercy, and it will be as if you're pouring into their lap and shaking it up and just running over just a blessing in front of them. And that's what Jesus is driving at here. It's just like in the book of Ruth. You remember what happened? Ruth is, you know, has come back from Moab and she's a widow and she's living with her bitter mother-in-law who's at home pouting because her life is bitter and she goes to glean in the field of Boaz and she's... At that time, the welfare system was, you know, walk behind the, the reapers and try and pick up some grain. So she's in the field and she's trying to pick up some grain. And Boaz says, come here. Here, let me load you up. And he just loads her up with grain. And she goes home and her mother-in-law says, where did you get all that? Listen, it was a blessing, wasn't it? Uh, Boaz didn't give that to her because she deserved it. But he did it because he was kind, he was loving, he was merciful, he was compassionate. And that's what Jesus wants us to do towards each other. You know, if you've ever blown it with somebody, I mean, most of you probably haven't. People back east do. <laughs> but yeah, you're, you've probably blown it. I've blown it. And you know, you sin against people because you're a sinner and they're a sinner. And it's so great when, when they're kind to you and say, hey, I understand, I forgive you. And you know what? When... They sin against you. Your first thought is what? You know what? I'm going to forgive them. Because I remember when, I, when they extended grace and mercy and they forgave me. I, I want to forgive them. And this is the attitude that the church is to have, that believers are to have towards one another. 
And Jesus interprets this at the end of the verse, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. So how are you doing? Are you measuring out grace, kindness, compassion, mercy, and love towards other people? If you do that and you do that a lot towards people in the body of Christ, you will find that they are more than happy and more than willing to just bless you with a pressed down, shaken together, running over blessing. So Jesus says, do it. Secondly, two examples you should not follow. Now we get into some more details here about the kind of judgment we are not to have. Do not judge. And uh, do not judge lest you be judged and do not condemn unless you be condemned are the two broad sweeping negative commands followed by the two broad sweeping positive commands, pardon and give. Now look at verse 39, where we begin to see the folly of unrighteous judgment. And he also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? They will both fall into the pit. Now, this is very easy to understand, isn't it? I mean, everybody knows what happens. Uh, If you're some blind man and you need to navigate around some, some pits, you don't find yourself a blind guide. Because he is going to fall in there. You're going to be hanging on to him because he's guiding you and he's going to pull you in after him. I mean, no duh. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were blinded. They were blind men. And they were leading the people into the pit. Not just a regular pit, but the very pit of hell. They were children of hell. And anybody who follows a child of hell going to hell goes to where that child is going, right? Yeah. And so if the blind person follows the blind person, they both end up in a bad spot in the pit. Turn to Matthew 15, which is probably the clearest example of this found anywhere in the New Testament. Matthew 15, starting in verse 1. This text illustrates exactly the kind of judgment we are to avoid. Look at verse 1. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why? Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Hmm. Very pious, very solemn, very serious offense. They didn't wash their hands. And here these Pharisees are judging Jesus' disciples because they were not following their hand-washing traditions. Do you see what they did here? They elevated their man-made traditions to the same authority as the Word of God and then judged these the disciples because they weren't following the traditions they had invented this is legalism it's one of three forms of legalism legalism comes in these three basic forms you're a legalist if you go through religious motions but your heart isn't right with god you're a legalist if you study the word of god know what the word of god says do what is right but do it from a wrong heart And you're a legalist if you elevate your man-made religion and rules and personal convictions and traditions to the same authority as scriptures, and then you condemn other people because they are not holding to whatever you invented. And these guys are doing all three. Look at verse 3. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this, you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. And what Jesus is referring to here is this very sneaky way of being greedy. At that time, this is what you did. If you were a Pharisee, you know, you've got a lot of money. 
And you've got your poor old parents who are scraping to get by. And you know what? They need help. So they come to you, son, we're, we're, we, we, need, we need money. We, we need you to help take care of us. Sorry, everything I have has been given to God. I cannot give it to you because it does not belong to me. Be warm and filled and go beg. And that's what they were doing. Somebody else came along and had a need. You know, I would be able to help them, but I've dedicated it all to the Lord. Oh, so pious. Everything I have isn't mine except to use and indulge on myself. Jesus continues in verse 7. You hypocrites. And you know what's interesting about that Greek word? You know what it means? Hypocrite. (laughs) Hippocrates. You hypocrite. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. There's one example of legalism. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. The other one. They qualified for all three kinds. Not were they doing religious motions, which were not even prescribed. They were doing religious motions and not from the heart. And then they were elevating their their man-made traditions to the same authority as Scripture. Look at verse 10. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man. You know, you aren't going to get spiritual cooties. You aren't going to become ungodly because you didn't wash your hands before you ate your sandwich. But what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into the pit. Same exact phrase that comes in our text. Jesus condemns hypocritical, condemning merciless, unloving judgment of other people when your life isn't right, your heart isn't right, and when you're judging them based off of things that are outside the scriptures. Turn to Romans chapter 2. We see the same thing. Romans chapter 2. Look at verse 17. In Romans 2, 17, Paul is speaking of the Jews. He's condemning Gentiles and Jews in this section. But now he's going after the Jews. In verse 17 of Romans 2, he says this. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in the dark and a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having the law and the embodiment of knowledge and the truth. I mean, you got it all. You know everything. You think you're just some great mentor. Verse 21, you therefore who teach another Do you teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. That's pretty serious. And everybody knows we've all been there. We've all talked to people who have said, I could never become a Christian because all Christians are hypocrites. You got it. They're all hypocrites. Why would anybody say that? Because it's true. We're hypocrites. Even the saved ones are saved hypocrites. But you know what's going on here. You start saying, the Bible says this, the Bible says that, the Bible says this, and you don't live up to it. And you pretend like you do. The unbelievers of the world see right through that. And you give them an opportunity to blaspheme God. Because of your 
hypocritical behavior. Back to Luke 6. Jesus then gives another example. Look at verse 40. A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. The word translated pupil or student is the word usually translated disciple in the New Testament. A disciple is is a learner, one who traveled with, listened to, asked questions of, patterned his life after some sort of mentor or teacher. The Greek word translated fully trained means to put into proper condition or to be made complete or fully trained. This is easy to understand also. Jesus is saying that those who are in the process of learning are not equal to those they are learning from. Those who are growing in maturity are not equal to those who have already reached maturity. I mean, they haven't arrived yet. Okay, that's easy. The question is, how does it relate to judging? That's a little more difficult. Well, Jesus loves this phrase. He uses it in Matthew 10, 24 and John 15, 20 and John 13, 16 to teach his disciples that they haven't become like him until they've been persecuted like him. And then the other way he says is you haven't become like me until you've learned to humble yourself. He uses it when he's washing their feet. And so the persecution one just fits right in the context of ours. The whole point Jesus is making here is, listen, when you're growing in the Lord, you need to be careful and not act like you're more mature than you are. Because, you know, just because you know what is right doesn't mean you're doing what is right. I think we all know this. If we are immature, if we haven't learned to act according to what we believe, then we need to be careful that we aren't judging other people as if we have learned to act according to what we believe. This is one of the great dangers that face every seminary student or seminary graduate. I mean, you could just be, you could be a brand new Christian and go to seminary and if you could survive... And you're sitting down and you're learning the Bible and Hebrew and Greek and Old Testament survey and New Testament survey and theology and doctrine and exegesis and hermeneutics and, you know, all this Bible knowledge. And you you can graduate and you think that you're godly because you have a lot of knowledge. Huh. You're just under more responsibility. That's all. And sometimes you can be tempted to go around condemning other people because they don't know what you know. Listen, it's not about knowing. It's about knowing and doing. The cure for this ungodly behavior is to remember to whom much is given, much is required. Listen, if you know a lot about the Bible, maybe you grew up in a Christian home. Maybe you went to Christian school. Maybe you went to Christian college. Maybe you went to seminary. If that's you... You've been given a lot. And so you need to have a lot of godliness to go with the privilege that you have been given. And you don't go around judging other people who have been given this much because they aren't acting like you who have given this much. The question is this. In proportion to how much you have learned, how are you behaving in godliness in relationship to the proportion of how much they have learned? Then that'll level you. You'll never catch up. You go to seminary, you're just humbled forever. You can never catch up. Those who have had the privilege of receiving good teaching for a long time must remember that they have a long way to grow and not become condemning and proud because, hey, you know, what's wrong with you? You know, haven't you ever studied this or read this book? Well, no, I'm just trying to figure out how to read my Bible. Wow. Why are you so ungodly? Listen, God wants us to know truth, but he also wants us to practice truth. And James makes it very clear that if we think Christianity is just about knowing and not doing, we delude ourselves, don't we? Yeah, we delude ourselves. We are self-deluded. 
And so, since we are all pupils and we are all students and we are all striving to be like Jesus, let's, let's not deceive ourselves into thinking we are something or not and go around condemning people for something we haven't even attained to. Third, judge righteously after examining your own life. Look at verse 41. I love this section. Too bad we don't have more time. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Don't you just love that? Jesus is using humor here. I like it. I like it. It's a very easy picture. Here's your friend, a little speck of dust in their eye, and you've got a telephone pole in your eye. The amazing thing is you don't know you have a telephone pole in your eye. That's what's weird about it. Look at, he says, but do not notice the telephone pole in your own eye. That is hard to miss, isn't it? Everybody sees it. Whoa, that guy's got a telephone pole sticking out of his eye. And you're oblivious to it. And people keep ducking every time you look at them. Look at verse 42. Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye when you yourselves do not see the log that is in your own eye? I mean, come on. You're going to help somebody out. You got to get that telephone pole out of there. Some people need to log a whole forest down. They need to do some strip logging. You can't go... Helping somebody with some little tiny speck of dust in their eye with a telephone pole sticking out of yours, you keep hitting them in the head. You just can't do it. Your telephone pole will blind you and hurt them. So notice what Jesus says. You hypocrite. Again, you stage actor. You religious pretender. You fake is what that means. First, do some strip logging. Take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the little speck that is in your brother's eye. Some people need to do some serious logging. Serious logging. Before even thinking of going to somebody else and telling them about their sin. They've got telephone poles sticking out in all directions. They need to clear a whole forest. This is what the Apostle Paul condemned in Romans 2, 1, where he says, Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. That's what Jesus is driving about. That is hypocritical judgment. And you know what's so important to have leaders, why it's so important to have leaders in the church who are qualified according to Timothy and Titus? Because of this very reason. It is very difficult to follow a leader in the church if they're hypocrites. People just won't do it. And not only that, not only will they not follow them in godliness if they try to lead them in godliness when they themselves aren't in godliness, but they will also follow them in their ungodliness and they will generate for themselves hypocrites. Like Jesus told the the Pharisees, you know, you make a disciple 10 times more of the children of hell than yourself. So if a leader in the church has some flaw, he's going to make other people with those same flaws but worse. And some people say, well, you know, your, it, your, your standards are pretty strong here for, for elders. It's like, we're just trying to do what the Bible says. You know, I'm sorry you can't teach, but the Bible says you have to be able to. So, sorry. You know, talk to God about it. Now, I want you to notice something here that most people fail to see and most people don't even know is in the Bible. Notice, Jesus does not say, never take the speck out of your brother's eye, does he? No. He says, first, take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck or judge that which is in your brother's eye. In other words, what Jesus is saying here, don't be a hypocrite. First, do what? Examine your life. And if you have to deal with some sin, you deal with that sin. And this is the great thing about judging, especially if you have to go confront somebody, because as soon as you start confronting people, what do you do? You start thinking, well, let's see, am I the right person? I mean, you know, do I have my act together? I mean, am I going to look like a hypocrite here? It's good for you and it's good for them. So that's what you do. 
So this solves the mystery. Do not judge hypocritically lest you be judged. On the other hand, judge unhypocritically. Your brother and sister in Christ need you to take the specks out of their eye. I mean, just think about it. In that day and age, they didn't have a lot of mirrors, you know. I mean, almost anywhere you go, if I said, does anybody have a mirror here? You know, probably the women could produce a hundred of them right now. Um, not a problem. You know, I could run over to the bathroom. It's easy distance away or any car in the parking lot. There's mirrors everywhere. But in that day and age, mirrors were extremely rare and extremely expensive and of poor quality. And so if you were outside and got some gnat or hair or a piece of dirt in your eye, you needed somebody else to help you with that speck. So you would go to them and say, yeah, I got some of my eye. Could you take it out? I mean, you know, you couldn't, you, you couldn't help yourself. You're just like, uh, you know, and so someone, some kind person would take that speck out. But, <laughs> you know, listen, if they got a pole sticking out of their eye, you don't want to go to that person because they're going to poke your eye out before they even get close. And that's whole Jesus' whole point. But his point is, get the log out, then help them. In other words, judge them, yes, but just don't do it hypocritically. Now, let's see if we can put to death the common and false understanding that Christians should never judge. Obviously, Jesus says so in the text. Here, take the speck out, then judge. Take, take that log out, then judge. That is... Deal with the other person's spec. Just don't do it hypocritically. All Christians are commanded to judge people and use discernment, which requires making judgments. Jesus taught, and I just want to bring this up because this is also misused to deflect people. In John 7, 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. People say, never go by the outside. Never go by what your eyes can see. Never go by appearance. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying in the context of the Pharisees who were judging people because they were not obeying the man-made traditions, don't just go by appearance. There's heart motives that have to be dealt with. Some people go through all the correct emotions, but their heart isn't right. And you can't see that. Only God has. But he's not saying never look at anybody in sin and say, well, you know, they appear to be in sin, but, you know, I'm not told to judge by appearance. Listen, some woman, you know, let's say, knows she is to dress modestly and discreetly because the scriptures say that. And at church, she does. The rest of the week, she doesn't. You see her out there. Now, you know, you don't say, well, she looks immodest, but she's, you know, I'm not to judge by appearance. Maybe she's not immodest. I say, of course she is. And the more mature women should go to that woman and say, hey, you're being hypocritical here. In the church, you dress one way, and in the world, you dress another. Do you think it's not okay to have men lust for you in the church? And, but in the world, it's okay. That's hypocrisy. And so we need to use our eyes. Yes, Matthew 18, the classic text on church discipline. How, how could you ever perform church discipline if you didn't see anything? See, that would be hard, huh? You see a brother in sin, what do you do? You go to him, you approve him in private. If you repent, you've won your brother. Romans 16, 7 says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause disturbances. Yeah, you keep your eye on them. You're watching, you're observing their appearance, their behavior. Now, you don't want to judge somebody because they're poor or sick or old or have a different skin color or they don't look like a supermodel or they aren't as smart as you. Those would be wrong reasons or aren't holding to your man-made traditions. But listen, we're to be judging, discerning in the church. You know the story in 1 Corinthians 5? In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you were to turn there, you would find that story of that man who was committing uh, immorality with his stepmother, was committing incest. And the Corinthians, wanting to do the loving thing, were tolerating it. And Paul says, what are you doing? He'd obviously made a judgment. He says, I'm giving that guy over to Satan. He says, remove the leaven from among you. In other words, listen, if you want your dough to not rise, keep the leaven out of it. If you want the church to remain pure, keep the leaven out of it. And then he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Now he says, I did not mean with the immoral people of this world, 
or with the covetous or swindlers or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. In other words, he's saying, I'm not talking about unbelievers. I'm talking about those who say they know Christ. Actually, I wrote you, he says, verse 11, not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or a covetous or idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Pass a judgment and condemnation. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Applied answer, nothing. Do you not judge those who are within the church? And the applied answer is absolutely. But those who are outside, God judges. Listen, it's every one of your responsibilities to look in this body and to take care of each other. You take care of me, I take care of you, you take care of each other. So when somebody's in sin, what do we do? Galatians 6.1, brethren, if someone's caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual... Don't have a log in your eye. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself, making sure there's no log there, so that you too will not be tempted. You will see the same thing in Second Thessalonians 3, 6 and 1 Timothy 5, 20. Speaking of elders, we need as Christians to be judging, to be discerning. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 says what? It says, examine everything carefully and hold on to that which is good. Well, how in the world... Can you do that if you don't make judgments? You have to. Discernment requires judgment. So just put it out of your head, this whole thing. Christians are never to judge. They are to always judge everything. And hold on to that which is good, that which conforms to the word of God. So when you leave here today, what are you going to do? Well, hopefully, you leave here today making sure you don't practice hypocritical judgment. You are not to judge others because they don't have your same convictions or keep your personal traditions. You are not to follow those who judge hypocritically. You are not to judge others who are growing in the Lord, but who haven't grown to the place that you wish they were at. You are not to judge those because they don't know as much as you do. But you are to judge everything carefully according to the word of God and hold on to that which is good. You are to judge those within the church and make sure no unrepentant sinner remains in the church body. Because God says so. We are to make those judgments. Okay. Well, now you know a little bit more about judging. What's good? What's bad? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text and for Jesus' teaching. We pray that you would help all of us to not be hypocritical or condemning in our judgment. I pray, Father, that you would help us all to be discerning and that, Father, we would be people who are characterized as extending love, patience, pardon, kindness towards one another so that we too can be blessed as others extend that to us because we definitely need it. Father, if there's anybody here who has never given their life to you, have never repented of their sins and received the forgiveness that can only be had in the Lord Jesus Christ, I just pray that you would save them now. Help us to leave here with more discernment and eager to apply what we learned today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you need somebody to pray with you, um, we have counselors who will be over here, I think, momentarily. And also, if you are a visitor we have a visitor center outside they have information they would love to give to you the rest of you you are dismissed have a great day